0: Hey everybody, welcome back to The Bold Sidebar. This is your host, Jeff Horn. I have three new cases for you. One State V, an interlocutory appeal, one legal malpractice case, and a Title 59 Tort Claims Act case. Let's jump right into the State V case, State V, Damian Sanchez, decided July 22, 21. This is a 5-2 decision. Justice Patterson writing for the court, joined by Chief Justice Rabner, Justice Solomon, Justice fernandez vina and Justice Pierre-Louis. In dissent are Justices Levecchia and Justice Albin. Harken back to a show earlier this year entitled Enough Police Witness Testimony that dealt with the case State v. Singh, if you remember that case. It was a a convenience store robbery, and the issue was, should the police officer be allowed to narrate the events that were depicted on surveillance video? So you can jump back to that one if you want to get a little more flavor on it. Let's jump into this case. Here, we have a murder. The defendant, Mr. Sanchez, is believed to have participated in it, and he is tied to the murder by virtue of a picture on a flyer. So go back to your childhood, go back to the postal offices you might have entered or other public buildings where you'd have the most wanted lists. Well, I haven't seen one of those in a long time. However, in this case, the Camden County Prosecutor's Office circulated a flyer entitled Attempt to Locate. And the flyer had a picture, it was a still photo taken off of a video camera or video surveillance video. On the picture is a vehicle. You cannot see the driver, but you can see males on the passenger side in the front seat and in the back seat of the vehicle. Enter Cheryl Anise. Cheryl Anise somehow gets the flyer and identifies Damien Sanchez as one of the individuals in the car. She is Mr. Sanchez's parole officer and has seen him 75 times, twice per month for months while he was out on parole. She identifies to the prosecutor's office that this is Mr. Sanchez. By the way, this case is an interlocutory appeal. We don't have that many opinions arising out of interlocutory appeals, but it turns out this photo is the only piece of physical evidence that ties Mr. Sanchez to the murder. So this lay expert testimony, lay opinion testimony, really it's not expert lay opinion testimony has been hotly contested. We've had three or four cases just this year dealing with this. I mentioned State V. Singh. There are others. In this case, the question is, would the jury be able to put an eyeball on the picture and identify the defendant without any help? Or is the picture in such a condition that it would require someone with familiarity to the defendant to identify him? And and the court kind of drives through the middle of this in that the uh, trial court barred the testimony finding that it would be improper lay opinion testimony under 701. The appellate division reversed, and the Supreme Court upholds the appellate division here, indicating that Ms. Anise's lay opinion testimony is well-grounded in New Jersey rule of evidence 701. That is, is the testimony rationally based on witness perception, and will the testimony assist the finder of fact? Here, there was no doubt that the testimony from Anise would be compelling. Here's a person who spent an enormous amount of time with the defendant and could testify that she interacted with him. Of course, the Supreme Court upheld the trial courts, an aspect of the trial court's observations and the appellate division's observations in that Anise could not testify that he was my parolee, only that they had professional interactions on a frequent basis. Whether this observation by Anise as to the uh, picture, is rationally based is really not challenged. There is some indication that there was a dispute as to whether the picture is too blurry. Or too clear. I suppose the defense would like to have it both ways, i.e., if it's too blurry, you can't rely upon a niece's identification of the defendant. And if it's too clear, you don't need a niece's identification of the uh, defendant because it's crystal clear that the jury could make this decision without the need to bring in a third party. Indeed, part of the the sense objection to uh, admitting the testimony is the fact that the picture quality uh, may be questionable. The majority will allow the testimony to go through and uh, we'll see what happens. Will the jury buy the lay opinion testimony offered by a niece, or will they uh, render their own observations once they see the picture and hear the testimony? to be determined. Next one is Gilbert V. Stewart. I said it's a legal malpractice case, but that really gives this case short shrift. It's a matrimonial case. It's an employee rights and responsibilities case. It's a public employee's case. It's a municipal court case. It's a whole bunch of things all rolled into one. Here we go. Brenda Gilbert is the plaintiff. She was divorced from Monroe Gilbert and Monroe acquired the family vehicle. However, the parties never changed the title or registration into Monroe's name monroe gets what is described as many outstanding traffic tickets in the vehicle registered now in his ex-wife's name monroe goes to court with brenda and lawyer kenyatta stewart they talk they plot and it's decided that brenda will take the bullet and plead guilty even though she was not the one operating the vehicle and getting all of these tickets she's pleads guilty she's uh, sentenced to fines and community service now who is brenda brenda works for probation she knows the ins and outs of what happens when folks commit motor vehicle or other criminal acts and end up on probation she seems a little nonchalant about it but she takes the bullet for her ex-husband She reports this incident to her supervisor as is required by folks that work in the court system. Here I've had an interaction with the court system and I've I've pleaded guilty to some municipal court charges, etc. The problem is she has multiple prior municipal court or other court interactions that she had not reported. Hence, she is in supreme hot water with her job and ends up having to take a substantial suspension and demotion as part of reporting violation, let's say, number three, even though she was not the perpetrator of violation number three. Well, she sues the lawyer, this lawyer Stewart, who should be pointed out, was not retained by Gilbert. There was no retainer letter. There was no fee exchange, etc. cetera. But it, it seems that Stewart was brought into the case by Monroe, and they somehow convinced Brenda that it would be a good idea for her to take the bullet here. On the municipal court side, once this is all surfaced, Brenda had another attorney file an application and vacated her guilty plea and she was cut loose from the municipal court problems that she had. As a result of her painful experience with the employer, she sued uh, Stewart and the court found that Stewart owed a duty to Gilbert. And failed, really failed miserably to assist her, even if Stewart wasn't particularly engaged to advise on a range of issues, certainly bringing up the fact that taking a guilty plea while you're employed by the court system can impact your employment is a triable issue. The case is sent back down for trial on Ms. Gilbert's malpractice claim. And finally, your Title 59 Claim, Tort Claims Act, in a very interesting context. HC Equities v. County of Union. HC Equities is a landlord, and the County of Union was a tenant for many years. The county stopped making its rent payments on the grounds that the landlord neglected the properties and failed to remedy damage from an electrical fire. The parties engage in a piece of litigation and then they agree to withdraw the litigation and try to settle the case. Time goes on. The county hires Colliers International to assess the county's real estate needs, Collier's issues a report indicating that there are substantial disadvantages in the buildings leased from HC Equities and that the county should exit the buildings. So HC Equities has a claim on a lease, then they have some other claims. Over time, they demand that the Collier's report be withdrawn, and there are a number of letters that deal with that. Well. It's not withdrawn. Time goes on. A number of years goes on until they file a claim to include a Title 59 claim that they have been damaged in tort by the county's conduct. Since there are a number of letters issued by counsel for HC equities, the issue is, do the letters meet the requirements of the Tort Claims Act? The trial court dismissed HC equities, conspiracy, and promissory estoppel claims. The appellate division revived those claims, saying that the three letters from counsel collectively constituted substantial compliance with the Tort Claims Act and revived the claims in tort, sounding in tort. New Jersey Supreme Court says not so fast. They simply did not comply with the provisions of the Tort Claims Act, file a timely motion to submit a late claim, or otherwise show that extraordinary circumstances barred them from bringing their claims sounding in tort. This seems to be, to me, a pretty straightforward policy claim. The party's relationship was really in contract, and the Tort Claims Act requires very specific timeframes and notice to specific parties. It doesn't seem like that's at all what the uh, plaintiff's counsel were driving at, three different law firms I should mention, when they were complaining to the county to withdraw the Collier's report and to resolve the outstanding contract claims between HC Equities and the County of Union. They really weren't giving tort claim notice and the Supreme Court did not uh, allow them to shoehorn these three letters from counsel. This is a opinion by Justice Patterson writing for a unanimous court chief justice rabner did not participate now a couple other things i have been working on what i'll call an ongoing book report and i will sprinkle the book report into the uh, podcast as we go forward please give me some feedback on this if you like this format so it's the book written by justice daniel o'hearn who served from 1981 to 2000 primarily on the Wilentz court. And uh, Justice O'Hearn wrote a very fun book. I've mentioned it before. Bruce Greenberg turned me on to it. And I've been going through it to try to pull out some nuggets that might be worth sharing about each justice who served for the, I believe it was about nine years when you had the same seven justices on the court from around 86 or 87 to 1995-96, I'll tighten this up, so I'll give you one justice per show over the next several shows. Maybe I'll skip a show. Anyway, uh, interesting book. Feel free to grab it. It's very easy, quick, fun read. Justice O'Hearn has a wit, and uh, of course, he was a fantastic legal writer, and he also uh, splices a bunch of stories in there and uh, some funny notes that he kept during his uh, tenure on the court. So that's it for today. Please feel free to get in touch with me. Thanks, signing off from the Bold Sidebar.